You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Uh, If you have a Bible... Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 14. While you're turning there, you're seeing me again because this week we're praying for Pastor Jared, who's in Jonesboro at Fellowship Jonesboro. He's speaking to the church that birthed us here. So um, God do a great work in the hearts of those people. And I pray that Jared would speak with boldness and confidence in who he is and you. And I know he's talking this morning about how we can be formed in the image of your son. And so I pray that that message would take root in their hearts. And I pray it would take root in our hearts. Because we want to be more like Jesus. We are Christians like Christ. (laughs) Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 14. Luke 14. I'm going to start in verse 12. We're going to jump into the middle of a dinner party. And something Jesus says in the middle of a dinner party. He says to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Why not? Well, if you do, they might invite you back so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Father, may that ring true in our hearts. Do that. (laughs) May we live that way. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Can I just start by saying that I love theme parks? You probably weren't, weren't expecting that one, were you? I do. I love theme parks, especially roller coasters. I am a huge thrill ride fanatic. They are thrilling. That's why they're called thrill rides. And the bigger, the taller, the faster, the better for me. And part of what fuels my love for roller coasters is the fact that I really, truly am afraid. I'm terrified of heights. Yeah, they do. They, it scares me to death. As a matter of fact, we did a recent Crossing Kids episode where Ace and I were throwing pumpkins off the roof of the crossing back here. It was at the end of Halloween. Well, actually, about a month later. Anyway, so we're throwing pumpkins off. And it's one of those things where if I get too close to the edge, you know, it makes me, it makes me tickle. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, woo. You know, I, I don't know why, but it's just a lot of fear of, of heights I have. So whenever I get the opportunity, I want to go on the highest ride at a theme park. And so one year I took a group of students to Cincinnati, Ohio for a missions trip. And while we were there, of course, on any missions trip with students, you have to take a day off to enjoy all of God's goodness and go to a theme park. So that's what we did. We went to Paramount's Kings Island, which has tons of roller coasters. And they have this big bad boy. Can we put it on the screen? Yes, that's it. It was at the time called the Drop Zone. I think they've renamed it a couple times. But anyway, at the time, it was the world's tallest free fall ride. It was 318, it still is, 318 feet tall. 40 people or so get on this large, like, 
thing that brings you all the way to the top and all it does it slowly goes to the top so if you're like me you know you're you know you need to go to the restroom before you get on the ride all that kind of stuff and you go up to the top and you're just like oh my oh my you know sweating i literally can't even grip the 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 headrest very well because i'm just like you know that feeling like i can't even hold on tight enough i'm so scared i'm leaning back like this i've got students on either side like looking over and i'm like please for the love of god do not do that it's like we're getting to the top and it, it just sits there for a few seconds it feels like a minute and a half of 10 minutes i don't know it's, it feels like eternity and then it just like lets you go and you free fall down it takes about a second and a half three seconds whatever it is and you get down to the ground, the brakes are put on, and, and it stops, and you survive, you know? And I got off that ride, and literally my knees are shaking, and I remember, of course, I'm kind of overly dramatic anyway. I'm literally on my face on the ground, and I love you, Earth, you know? Thank you, Jesus, you know, like all this. And, uh, and you may be sitting there thinking, like, well, if you're so afraid of heights, like, why in the world would you put yourself through something like that? Maybe it's because I'm weird. But it seems to me that there is an endless stream of people who are willing to do the exact same thing. Now, why is that? Well, Eddie Soto is an Imagineer for the Walt Disney Company. If you don't know what Imagineer is, Walt Disney had this idea. Actually, it was one of the CEOs later. But anyway, the Disney Company had this idea of engineering and imagination and marrying those two words together. So they had these Imagineers. Eddie Soto came up with this formula for attractions. And the formula is fear minus death equals fun. Okay? And he says something like, here's what he says. Fear minus death equals fun is a formula for experiential design and roller coasters and thrill rides. And the idea is that people don't want to just survive. They want to thrive. Now, that's interesting. That people don't just want to survive, they want to thrive. And these past few weeks, we've been talking about how to thrive in this new normal that Jesus has called us into. Like as we come out of the restrictions and distancing and disruptions of the coronavirus, if we're coming out of it, like we believe that God does not want us to settle back into the old normal. That we're praying that God through this time has been doing something and is ready to release us into a new way of living, a new normal. And we believe the new normal is marked by at least three things, and this is what we've been preaching on. Week one, we looked at abiding, that we should be abiding in the vine as part of this new normal. uh, Excuse me, it was Jared that led us through Jesus' words in John 15, if you'll remember, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. And then Jesus later on in verse 10, he says, If you you keep my commands, then you remain in my love, just as I keep my Father's commands and remain in his love. So Jesus sets the example for us. He abides in the love of the Father, and we therefore abide in the love of Jesus. And if we're going to come out of here and thrive in this new normal we have to abide in the love of god through jesus we must do that secondly we saw that the new normal must be shared in healthy community jesus again is our teacher and uh in the in the book of john also in verse 17 or chapter 17 jesus is about to go to his death he knows his death is 
right here. He stands on the precipice overlooking the valley of the shadow of death. And he prays to his father. And in verse 4 of that prayer, Jesus says these words. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me, check this out, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus, check this out, is the second person of a triune God. In other words, one God, three persons. Three who's, one what? And so, check this out, Jesus is responsible for the creation of everything you see and everything you don't see. And I used to think that like, well, why, why did God create the world? Well, the reason must be is that God was lonely and he needed companionship. And so he created human beings so he'd have someone to talk to, you know, someone to love him. But that's not true at all. God has existed in perfect community within the Godhead for all of eternity. And then, not only in perfect community, but a perfect community of love. And it's out of the overflow of the love of God within Himself that creation happens. And we, Genesis tells us, as human beings, are created in the image of God, and therefore God says it's not good that man should be alone. We were made for community. In fact, it's in community where we tangibly experience the graces of God. You may hear and believe that God is love and God loves you. But it's only within community that you can tangibly experience the love of God. Like God is forgiving. Well, yeah, that's great. I believe that. But it's not until you wrong a brother or sister and you receive the forgiveness from them that you tangibly experience that grace of God. And what's crazy about it is that can be very scary. In fact, I've been in ministry for a long time. I started before I graduated high school. I took my first job in a church when I was 18. My students at my first church came to my high school graduation. I don't know how wise the church was in hiring me, but I've been doing it forever. You know, like my whole, it's my whole life. And because of the context like that i existed in for the first 18 years or so of of ministry there was this assumed way of living that like I had to be good I had to be perfect you know I had to put on that my life is put together and if it's not like my kids got out of line or if if I did something stupid I might be disqualified you know what I mean I could lose my job and things like that so it was all this pressure and then like it, the pressure was so much to be quite honest we were ready to leave ministry altogether it's it's all we were going to use ohana to do it you know we were like we're getting out of here and so uh then then jared actually texted me one day and it's like hey i'd love to talk to you about the fellowship you know and like i wasn't i wasn't wanting that i wasn't looking to that or anything like that and and we yeah let's let's talk to him see what he's talking about and i'm telling you the lord just stirred our heart in such a way that like we want to be a, a part of what god's doing here but yeah, well, uh, sounds great. Then we got involved and like found out that, that what was expected of me here is not perfection, but instead to be vulnerable and open myself up to other people and in community. And I'm like, no, thank you. Like, I, like that sounds awesome when I say it to someone else. But for me, like that's t- 
terrifying, very scary, and it was, Adam was hard. You know, like my wife and I, we would sit through counseling. We don't need no counseling. Yes, we did. Okay. So we'd sit through counseling every week and I would cry and we would like, I never knew this about you. And like, what are we doing married together? Like, oh my gosh. Uh, like, it was just like, wow, this is really hard. Okay. It's scary. But through it all, we've experienced the graces of God. But that fear brings us to our third and final thing, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And that is that a mark of a disciple thriving in this new normal is that in the face of fear, God is calling us to live a life of risk. And if you're ever being tempted to believe this phony baloney lie that being a Christian is somehow boring, this sermon is going to be for you. So let's go back to Jesus' words that we read at the beginning. And just to set the stage, we need to know that, like I said, Jesus is at the house of a prominent Pharisee for a dinner party. He's the guest of honor, big dinner, and he makes everything super awkward. Jesus was a master of making things awkward. It's Saturday, which is the Sabbath day. And there's a man there who has the swelling disease. He's all swelled up. And Jesus heals this guy which was a really big deal. And he does it after asking all these teachers of the law, hey, is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? And guess what their response is? Uh, 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 (laughs) Awkward. And so Jesus does it. He heals the man. More awkward. Everyone now is like, uh, doesn't know what to say or do. So they say nothing. Everyone's super uncomfortable. And so Jesus, as a master of making prideful people uncomfortable, he addresses their pride through a story and a few teachings, and he finishes by addressing the very purpose of the dinner he's attending. What is the purpose of this dinner? Well, Jesus has been invited there, and guess who the whole community's been talking about and wants to get to see? Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's brought there for a couple of reasons. One, because that's really going to make me, as the host, look like something. i got Jesus at my party. You know what I'm saying? But another thing is, like, I'm a Pharisee and all of my posse, I don't really like what he's been saying, and we're going to really watch and see what he has to do and say. You see what I'm saying? So there's a lot going on here, but Jesus addresses, like, hey, I understand what the purpose of this party is, and he calls then all these rich and influential people to do something really crazy. Take a risk. That's what he says. I want you to take a risk, and next time you throw a party, I want you to invite people that you wouldn't normally invite. I want you to invite somebody that's not going to pay you back. Because everyone at this party, they're going to invite you to the next one. You know what I'm saying? You're running in this circle of people, and you're all influential, and you're all powerful. And then, like, you know, you, you, you paid this big expense to, like, have this party. But guess what's happening next week? Well, Joe down here, the other Pharisee, he's going to have a big party, and you're going to be invited and not have to pay for that one. You know what I'm saying? And when you need a favor, he's going to be there for you. You're building a network, you're doing the thing. But Jesus calls us to take a risk, and very little happens of any significance in an individual life, a church, a family, or an organization that does not involve taking risks. And so, I want things to happen in your life. Like, I want you to be able to accomplish things that you never dreamed you could accomplish for the cause of Christ. And I promise you, you may be thinking, like, yeah, this message is for somebody who's really audacious, really bold, 
But you don't have to be a big, great person in order for God to use you to do extraordinary things for him. But you do need to take risks. So we're going to start by defining what risk is. What is a risk? Well, we have this on the screen. Risk is an action that exposes you to the possibility of injury or loss. It is any action that exposes you to the possibility of injury, and it could be big or it could be small. The loss could be money. It could be your life. There's a whole array of risks. Little teeny ones where you're just going to get some egg on your face to the big one where you can be killed. And you have to take, listen, you have to take those kinds of risks in order to move forward and make an impact for Christ. You have to. So now we know what risk is. I want to draw a quick line between what we would see as foolish risks and Christ-exalting risks. So first we have some foolish risks, which by the way would be forbidden in the Bible. This would be sinful, okay? Maybe you're a person, or you know a person, who would enjoy the thrill of topping out over 100 miles an hour going down between Paragould and Jonesboro on Highway 49. <laughs> over 100. Just like that. That's pretty risky. There's the risk of being fined or arrested. There's the risk of losing control and crashing. There's the risk of injuring or killing another person. How about this guy? I think we have a picture. We'll put this. uh, I saw this on YouTube. Makes me tickle. Again, I can't look at it very long. This guy is out walking on a crane. I think somewhere in Europe. He's walking over a city skyline. He literally has nothing harnessed to him at all. He is free walking. Look at his hands here. And he just walks along this little thing here, the crane here, out in the middle of nothing. He'll go out there and then he grabs it and does like a handstand on it. And the whole time I'm just like, ah, you know, for some reason I'm watching it. And in the comments of it, it says, this fearless daredevil took the top of a crane above this city to test out his bravery and balance. And risks like these, they do fall under the fear minus death, sometimes, formula that we talked about. And there are reasons that I would risk my life, but this is not not one of them. Like, I'm created in the image of God for a significant reason on this planet. And I, I'm going to risk my life for, for fun? Like for a surge? No. But to take the gospel to a country where they tell me, like, you may not get out of there? Did, that would be worth it. And God wants you to take risks with your life. So what, what keeps us from doing this? Like what keeps you from taking Christ-exalting risks? Okay. Well, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just some things that came to my mind as I was preparing. I got three. But the first one that might keep you from taking a Christ-exalting risk is that we think others will do it for us. You know, historically, here in the American church, it was the disciples of Jesus who built hospitals, who built orphanages and schools, who started universities and built housing for the poor, It was the church doing that. It used to be the church that the government looked to to care for the poor. And it used to be the church that the government looked to for healing the sick. 
It used to be that the church was what the government looked to to educate our children. It used to be the church that was on the forefront of science and discovery. But now, we have all these Christians just throwing in the towel on all those things. And we say instead, this political party will save us. Or if I could just get so-and-so into office, we would see revival in our land. And over and over again, the church in America is looking to the government and others who don't even fear God to solve the world's problems. Like We expect the government to care for the poor and the refugee. We expect the government to build the hospitals. We look to the government to educate our kids. And by the way, here's the kicker. The government not only does a... I'm sorry, educators. I mean, you all are great. But the government, by and large, does a lousy job of, of educating our kids. And not only that, they're certainly not teaching them the truths of God. And so things that were once viewed as sacred are now taught to be immoral. And all the while, we in the church, we sit back and say, where's my stimulus check? So we think others will do it. Number two, another reason, we're just scared. We're scared. And of course we're scared because it's scary. (laughs) Risk is scary. And I pray that we can be freed from this illusion that security is possible. Security is what most people are, are working and living for in this world anyway. We work hard. We even take personal and professional risk in order to get ahead. Why? So we can accumulate more. Why? So we can keep ourselves safe. Like safe from what? Well, safe from loss. Safe from certain people. But it's an illusion. It's a myth of safety. An enchantment. Helen Keller said this. She said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. And avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. She says, the fearful are caught as often as the bold. Faith alone defends. So people live in this enchantment of security. We're constantly padding our locks, putting big airbags in our car, operating as though life somehow could be made secure, and it can't. Like, ultimately, you can't stop the disease. I mean, should we be prudent and should we be wise? Of course. Like, should we make foolish risks and drive fast and not buy cars with airbags? No, that's not what we're saying at all. But we've got to get this out of our mind that somehow I can avoid loss and risk. I cannot. And so God is summoning summoning us now to wake up to this reality, not to risk for our own private pleasure, but to risk for Christ. A third reason that we often avoid risk is that we believe deep down that it's better to receive than to give. It's just the idea of consumerism. In my early sales training day at uh, Southwestern Bell, used to be Southwestern Bell. I was that annoying guy. If you were a business owner, I was that annoying guy that would call you and say, hey, uh, how much you spending on long distance? You know, uh, I was that guy. And I was really good at it, by the way. I was the number one salesperson in a five-state region, Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, Arkansas, and Texas. Thank you. Thank you very much. And one of the reasons I was so successful is I believed and I, I lived by this sales tactic of WIFM. I don't know if you ever heard of this. W-I-I-F-M. WIFM which stands for what's in it for me. What's in it for me? And so in my sales pitch, it's always like, hey, this is about you. It's about you. 
It's about you. I'm here for you. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, hey, I've been selling service for this long, you know, and listen to my story. No, 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 no. I want to talk about you because that's what people want to hear about. In fact, Albert Camus, he was a Nobel Prize. I, believe me, I haven't read this guy, okay? He's, he's, he's French anyway. All his writings in French. But translated in English, look what he said here. He says, to be happy, we must not be too concerned with others. <laughs> and this is the idea of many, even in the church, that if I'm really going to be happy, I can't concern myself too much with everybody else. i got to think about me. And we'll think like, well, if I do that, then I might miss out on this. Like if I give that money to this, or if I start tithing, well, then I, like, I won't be able to drive this. You see? Sky Jathani, he's a Christian thinker, says it this way. He says, the demotion of Jesus Christ from Lord to label, which by the way is what we make Jesus when we think that way. Like we just think um, Jesus is an add-on to my life. You know what I mean? Like it's a label that, that like marks uh, what I believe, but not the Lord of what I do. You know what I'm saying? And he says this, demo- I don't have this one for the screen, sorry. The demotion of Jesus from Lord to label means that to live as a Christian no longer carries an expectation of obedience and risk, but rather the perpetual consumer, uh, consumption of Christian merchandise and experiences. And too many in the modern American church just see Jesus as a means to an end. It's not that uh, I see Jesus as a way to like help me get what I want. So that's why we often don't take these big liberating God-exalting risks. But to take risks for the glory of Christ and His kingdom pleases God. Because it is an exercise of faith. And without faith... It's impossible to please God, Hebrews tells us. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In fact, Hebrews 11.1 defines faith this way. He says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we what? Do not see. And that's the key right there to our ability to take risks. We do not see. So to understand risk... And like God's relationship to risk-taking, we got to understand this. God cannot take a risk. Not that He doesn't want to. He cannot. It's contrary to His nature. And the reason why is because essential to the meaning of risk is, the, is ignorance. Okay? Not, not ignorance like you're, you're stupid. Not, that, not in that sense. But that you can't know the future. You can't know the outcome. But God takes no risk Because risk requires ignorance. If you know you're going to lose your life when you do this, it's not a risk. It's a sacrifice. Risk assumes ignorance about what's coming. So God cannot take a risk because He has no ignorance about what's coming. When He sends His Son into the world, it's not a risk for Jesus. He is going to die. Period. God, the Father, negotiates with the Son in heaven. And He sends His Son to die. And the will of the Lord was to crush Him. They didn't sneak up on Jesus. Isaiah 46, God speaks to the prophet this way. He says, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. 
I'm God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God knows and runs the future. And therefore, He makes no risks. But He does make huge sacrifices. He knew His son would die. That's why He sent Him. And I pray that we would stay away from this newfangled theology about God because we're trying to rescue God somehow by saying that God doesn't know the future. And therefore, it like solves all these problems with evil and suffering. You know, why would God allow good things to happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? And somehow we think we can rescue God from this problem by saying, well, God just doesn't know. He didn't know that would happen. But what gives people strength, catch this, is the goodness and sovereignty of God. Like God is good. I don't understand like why I've got this pain or this cancer or why my parents are getting a divorce or why my little brother was hit by a car. I don't understand it. But God is good. And God is God. God runs the world. And I don't understand it now, but someday I will see just what God is up to in all of this. And this helps pastorally that God can take no risk. And the reason I just keep laboring on this is because He can't, you can. Because God can't take a risk, now the door is wide open for you and me to take big, bold risks. And we'll come back to that at the end, but let me just say that the grounds or the power for you being able to take a risk, whether it's on your campus or some unreached people group in some far-flung part of the world, or individually in some way is because God knows exactly what's coming. And He works it all, He controls it all so that you can take the risk. God intends for you to be ignorant about the future. So, when I was 10, 11, 12, in that age of my life, I was a huge fan of the movie Bloodsport. <clears throat> you ever seen Bloodsport? Jean-Claude Van Damme? I was going to put a picture of it on the screen, but there are ladies in the room. So, um, <laughs> my son would say, no sus, okay? Just like, oh, I don't want to get into that. But anyway, okay. But anyway, Jean-Claude Van Damme, I would watch Bloodsport. You know, I'm a young, young 10, 11, 12-year-old, 13, whatever. And I'd watch that. I don't remember a whole lot about the movie. I don't watch it now. I haven't watched it in a while. But I do remember that, it, you know, towards the end was my favorite part. It was all the fighting stuff. Okay, there was this underground fighting ring going on somewhere in Asia somewhere. And like Jean-Claude Van Damme was this, I think he was American. But anyway, he's like kicking tail and all this. And I remember like at the end, he beats the ultimate bad guy after being like powder flung in his eyes. He can't see. He's like, oh, all in slow-mo. It's really weird. But anyway, he like high kicking people, doing the splits and stuff. It's awesome. Totally takes this guy out. And every time I'd watch that, I'd get done and I would beat up my family. You know what I mean? Like my brother and sister should watch out. They're like, Robert's been watching Bloodsport. You know, I'm going to my room, you know, so they would get away. And I would, I'd be at school and somebody, you know, say something. I like, watch out. I just watched Bloodsport last night. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> and in the same way, like watching that somehow like inspired me to be a fighter. 
and to work hard. There are stories in the Bible about great risks. And what happens to us when we see these stories, we too get inspired to do it. Some of them are tailor-made for you ladies. Some of them are tailor-made for us men. So I'm going to give a few of these and with the aim, the hope, that it inspires us to do the same. So the first one comes from 2 Samuel 10. Nahash is the king of the Ammonites. And David is the king of Israel. And David really likes Nahash. They have a good relationship. And Nahash dies. He has a son named Hanun. And Hanun, uh, David, well, David sends a delegation to Hanun to pay respects to his father. However, there's these young counselors who talk to Hanun and say like, hey, you don't like really trust David, do you? I, I think these people are spies. They're not here to pay respects to your dad. And Hanun believed them. And so he cuts off their clothes. The Bible says right at the buttocks. Okay. He cuts their beards off in half and puts them out in public to publicly shame them and send them away. And when David hears about this, he is enraged. And when a king becomes enraged, it's not a personal thing. It's a global thing. And so uh, the Ammonites see, they know that David is enraged. And so what they do is they start getting ready. They, they dispatch to uh, the Syrians and they hire the Syrians to come down and help them fight. And so the Syrians agree. David sends his army. Joab, his nephew, leads the charge with his brother Abishai. Joab and Abishai, here they are with Israel's army. The Ammonites on one side, Syrians on another side. And it doesn't look good. And it's Joab's words to Abishai that will make a man's spine tingle. Especially if you're like me, you got two sons. And I could think about, boy, Aiden one day saying something like this to my boy. Listen to what he says. Verse 11 of 2 Samuel 10, Joab said, If the Syrians, if we're reading in the NIV, the Arameans, are too strong for me, then you come to my rescue. And if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come to your rescue. Be strong. And let's fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what's good in His sight. Do you know what that is? Not that. (laughs) That word... The Lord will do what's good in his sight. That is pure risk. Like I might have expected him to say, and God will give us the victory. But he doesn't say that. You stand against this enemy. I'll stand against this enemy. If they're defeating you, I'm going to come help. If they're defeating me, you're going to come help. That's the strategy. And we're going to do it. We're going to fight. And the Lord will do what's good in his sight. But we're going against the Ammonites. He doesn't know if he's going to win or not. But he's going to do what's right and he's going to stand for the cities of God. And there's going to be places in your life where that's exactly what it looks like. You could turn and flee, but you say, no, like I'm going to move forward. You take that one, you take that one, and we'll do the best we can. And the Lord will do what's good in his sight. That's example number one. Next one. Oh, Esther. Esther. This is especially for you ladies. Jews have been taken into exile, into Babylon. Really not going well. Mordecai 
great Jewish man, has a younger cousin named Esther. She's an orphan. Don't know what happened to her parents. Maybe they died in the siege. We don't know. But Mordecai adopts Esther and she grows up to be like the most beautiful woman the world's seen. There's a king of Babylon. I never can pronounce his name. Ahasuerus. Am I saying that right? That's how I say it. But he gets, uh, he gets out of sorts with Queen Vashti because she won't show up to his dinner party. And she's out of there. Okay? That's how it works. And so to get a new queen, he holds a beauty contest. And Esther is chosen to be the new queen. She has no choice in this. She's a Jew who's now queen of Babylon. And the king doesn't even know that she's a Jew. There's another man there named Haman. Oh, boy. What a wicked dude. He hates Jews. And he really hates Mordecai. Because Mordecai won't bow down to anybody except his God. And so Haman, Haman like devises this evil plot to have all the Jews killed so that he can get to Mordecai. Mordecai finds out about it, and he decides that our only hope here is Esther. And he sends word to her. He says, Esther, you've got to go tell the king what's going on here. You're the queen. And then she replies back, I can't go in there. Like, I can't do that. I can't go in there unbidden. Because it's unlawful for me to do that. And if I go in there and seek a, a, an audience with the king and he doesn't like raise the scepter, I'm dead. And Mordecai sends word back and says, basically, if you aren't used, if you aren't used to raise salvation for us, God will use somebody else. You better do this. And then here's the words of Esther 4, beginning in verse 15. Esther sends this reply to Mordecai. She says, go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I'm going to do it. I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Isn't that awesome? I'm like, this is better than a roller coaster. Or some drop tower. Like if I perish, I perish. These are stories that are in the Bible to cause you and me in this room to go home resolving, I will take godly risks for my king. One more, number three. Actually, two more. If I can do it quickly. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? The king of Babylon builds this 90-foot-tall idol. He says, everybody got to bow down to the, and worship the idol. And guess what? Everybody gets down on their face except for these guys. Nope. <laughs> you know? Uh, easy to spot them when everybody's on their face and they're just standing there, you know, <laughs> like I ain't doing it. Oh boy. So they get brought before the king and uh, the king says like, don't you know that I can throw you into the fiery furnace and burn you to a crisp? Oh, let's read their words. Daniel three sixteen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know how they said it. Let's say they said it meek. We have no need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into your blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now that's true, no matter what happens, even if they're burned up in that fire. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Even if he does not. 
If God will not save us, we're not going to bow down anyway. The Lord will do what's good in his sight. If I perish, I perish. Whether we live or die, we're not bowing down. So God, like whatever you want to do with us, we're yours. The most famous risk taker in all the Bible, probably the Apostle Paul. We've got so much we could say about him. But in Acts 21, he had been raising some money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. So he'd been collecting this money and he had committed himself to go to Jerusalem and deliver it. And he knew that there would be trouble in Jerusalem. I want to read a quick excerpt from Acts 21, beginning in verse 12. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He comes over to us and he takes Paul's belt, so he takes Paul's belt off and tied his own hands and feet with it and says, the Holy Spirit says, now we better listen, right? The Holy Spirit says in this way, like this, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's what's going to happen. Verse 12, when we heard this, and the pe- uh, we and all the people pleaded with Paul not to do this. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. So the Lord will do what's good in his sight. If I perish, I perish. Live or die, we're not bowing down. The Lord's will will be done. We don't know what it's going to be. And just like the 11-year-old me was ready to fight the world after watching Bloodsport, the 40-year-old me who's following Jesus, trying to, hears things like this, and I just everything in me says, I'm ready to risk it all for Christ. So let me ask you this question. What happens, what happens if you don't? risk what happens if you say like okay like i'm not i'm not going there like i'm gonna go back to my secure job okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go to school if you're young like i'm gonna get a real practical education i'm gonna get a good job you want to get a nice house lots of locks on the doors i'm gonna stay away from the rundown parts of paragol i'm gonna get old and i'm gonna be happy I'm going to have lots of sensual pleasures. I'm going to go lots on, on lots of vacations. I'm going to have wrinkles and uselessness in my rocking chair, in my lake house, until I drop, leaving my middle-aged children some fat inheritance to confirm them in their worldliness. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And you choose that. Like, I'm not going to choose risk. So you think. And I'm pleading you not, with you not to do that, but rather to embrace the cost. But what happens if you do? If you do that, well, there's a story in the Bible about it. I know we got to move quick, but there's 12 spies. Okay. Moses led the people of Israel out of the, out of the land of Egypt. They come upon the promised land. They're standing there right on the edge. They send in 12 spies, 10 real conservative good guys in there and two radical crazy dudes. Okay. Go in 40 days to spy out the land to see like, Hey, let's come up with a strategy. Let's figure out how we're going to do this. Tell us if this is indeed a land flowing of milk and honey, like God said it was. Okay. Go in and spy it out. Come back. We can't wait to hear the report. And when they come back, there's two reports given. The ten conservative guys come back and say, we can't go in there. There's giants in there. And in like fortified cities with walls. Like we look like grasshoppers in, in, in front of these people. Like we can't do this. This is crazy. 
And then there's two guys, Caleb and Joshua, who are like, by golly, we better do it. And we can do it. If God's for us, we can do it. And the ten voices held sway. And oh, that the crossing church would not do what Israel did here. Like they walk right up to the promised land. They send these conservatives in, these two radicals in. And the voice of the ten holds sway. And here's the cost. Forty years of aimlessness. Numbers 14, 34. God says, for 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days that you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins. And know what it's like to have me against you. Are you living in the middle of that curse on your life? Please. I'm so afraid that I'll wake up one day and that's me. Like you walk right up to the edge of a dream. And some counselors say to you, like, I, I think you're more suited for this. Like, it would be safer. And everything in you is like crying out, like, but I want to do this for Christ. And you throw it away. And you enter into 40 years of wandering in the middle of middle class, prosperous, happy, vain success. Perhaps some of you in this room, you're watching on Facebook maybe, 60 years old, and you're right there at the end of 40 years of wandering. And there's good news, like we're glad you're here because it can end. Like it can end at 20, it can end at 10, 5, 2. And maybe the reason you're here and maybe the reason God has you hearing this word now is that he's calling you to walk out of that 40 years of waste. Because we weren't made to live and simply survive, but to thrive. So I want to quickly end with this. How, how should we risk? Like what would that look like? I'm going to give you just a couple of quick ways. I want to talk about how we could risk in relationships, money, in our witness, or in ministry. Okay, And these are going to be all over the map. I'm just going to start throwing some stuff out there. And maybe the Holy Spirit would use something like this to just stick. Okay? Maybe he's already been stirring something like this in your heart. And I just pray that as we mention these things out loud, something might stick. Let's talk about risk in relationships. You know, if you love anyone, you're into risk. Marriage is risk. Amen. It is risky. What about fostering a child? That would be risky, wouldn't it? Because you're exposing yourself to loss hurt what about adopting a child what about building relationships with your neighbor you know the one that (laughs) leaves all their junk out in the yard you know that guy that when every time he mows he messes up your yard or every time uh you know he comes keeps parking in the wrong spot on the street you know that guy am i just talking about me maybe i'm just talking about me what if you intentionally built a relationship with someone on your street and you started inviting them over to your house once a week for dinner just to get to know them and show them the love and goodness of God. What about the last, the least, and the lost? Like, What if you intentionally built relationships with someone who was poor? 
What about the waiter at a restaurant? What if you took a risk? Maybe the risk would be like, our family's just going to start praying together in public before we eat. That sounds risky, right? It feels risky. What if before you prayed and that waiter comes by, what if you ask some really big, bold, crazy question? Like, hey, what's your name? Danny? Danny, listen, we're about to pray, dude. Um, this may sound really weird, but like, if you, if you right now could ask God to do anything for you, and he was standing right here and you could ask him to do anything for you, what would you ask him? Danny, would you mind if we prayed that that would happen for you? And then you did something like that. That sounds risky, doesn't it? It does. It does to me. Man, do take risks in relationships. What about the second one, money? Boy, there's a lot to be said by Jesus in this area. And I want to plead with you briefly to take risks with your money. Meaning, live on less than you think you can. And give more than you think you can. And I want to address young people for just a second. It's good, I think, right now that we don't have like the older crossing kids going on. I want you to hear this. Like, so if you're young, if you're a kid, I want you to hear this. I want to plead with you kids, okay? Students, that as you get an education, you start rising in your career, whatever it is, you know, doctor, mechanic, whatever, highly educated, skilled, whatever, you, you begin to rise. And if you're smart, over time, you're going to get paid more. What are you going to do with that money as you get more and more? Are you going to build bigger barns, like buy bigger houses, faster cars, take a longer vacation each year? Like you have it, spend it, it's yours. And every ad tells you to do this, like have all the cushy stuff that wealth affords. You know, we had a conversation in our house recently about a family in our city that not long ago ran into lots of money and they did not come from money. Okay, and they ran into lots of money, and and it just brought up this conversation in our house. What would happen like if sixty million dollars landed in our lap? You know what I mean? I just want to ask you that question real quick. What would happen if a million, sixty million dollars landed in your lap today? I know it's like, well, um, million dollars. Let's be let's be keep it simple. Million dollar house. You know what I'm saying? Like. Um, I'm not going to go crazy like with Lamborghini, but maybe the new Corvette. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you just, and I want to have plenty left over, you know, to give away. Well, I, I just want to say this. Like, this is what the prosperity gospel does. Um, the, the world watching the Christian church is never drawn to Christ by our prosperity. Like, Never. No, they're not drawn to Christ. Now, they may be drawn to the church that tells them that they can prosper. But they're not being drawn to Christ. What draws people to Christ is people who could have, and because they value Jesus more, don't keep it. That draws people to Christ. They look at you and say, so you could be driving this, you could be living here, you could have this kind of security and comfort, but you're choosing this? I don't know any other way that the world's going to be impressed with the church than by our suffering, our sacrifices, our big buildings, our fancy programs, cool music. It's, hey, it's cool, but it's not going to draw people to Christ. What draws people to Christ is love, sacrificial love, cost something. 
The world does cool music. The world loves big buildings, successful programs. It's not, it's not a big deal to the world. In fact, the world's better at it than we are. We can't entertain people into heaven. So we don't want to try to imitate the world in our churches by having the biggest, flashiest, and best. It's not impressive. And so why in the world don't we try to make an impact for Christ and call our people over and over again to live a wartime footing for the world? Like, that's what we want to do. So risk with your money. Simple stuff. Tithing, right? Like, what are you going to do, by the way, when we lose our tax-exempt status for tithing and you no longer can write it off? Like, have you already settled in your heart what you're going to do about that? What about a risk in witness? And look, I, I, I'm, I'm just watching this clock. I'm sorry, I'm going too long. But I just want to say a few more things. Jesus said things like, they're going to lay their hands on you, like talking to his disciples. He says, they're going to lay their hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up in the synagogues and prisons, and you're going to be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And there's going to be a time for you to bear testimony and you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends. And some of you, they'll put to death. And the word some, I want to draw attention to that. And that is that if you live faithfully to Jesus in this world, like globally, some of you in this room may very well be martyred. Not all of us, not most of us, some, maybe. There was this picture in Revelation 6 where uh, these martyrs are under the altar in heaven and they're crying out like, how long, O Lord, until you vindicate your blood? And Jesus says this like amazing thing. He clothes them with robes and he says, be quiet until the full number comes in of those who are to die for the sake of the name. Like Jesus has an appointed number, maybe some in this room who are going to die for Christ explicitly because of martyrdom. And there may be some in here that God has been stirring in you to go to some far-flung place of the world and to give away your life, not knowing that it's going to end in death, but just whatever, Lord, you want to do with me, I want to go. And there may be some in here right now that have been putting that off and putting that off and listening to counsel saying like, ah, maybe just be a pastor. Maybe just, uh, you know, be a missionary here, you know. Don't, don't ignore that word. Finally, maybe, maybe it is a ministry call to risk in ministry. Like to, maybe you're feeling called to be an elder or serve in some type of ministry. Or you're feeling this call to start something. To see the kingdom of God break in more and more here. Like this stuff, this to me, like it's, I feel it and I'm like, Yes! But I'm also like, ah, like I'm so scared. Even on these little things, right? Like, you know, having a conversation with somebody, sharing my faith. And I just want to say this in closing. And that is that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and we put our faith in him, Paul said that now there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not even sword or death itself. Nothing shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, nothing. And since Jesus has ultimately removed any ultimate risk, there really is no risk. 
Because like for Paul, he would say to live, it's Christ, but to die, like if you kill me, guess what? Game. I cannot lose. I can't lose. And you can't lose. So live a life of risk. Please, at the end of this global pandemic, whenever it ends, don't go back to a life of perceived safety. Let's risk our lives for the cause of Christ. For that reason, we're going to have communion. Because we need to be reminded, I need to be reminded, that it's Christ who opens the door wide open for me to live boldly for the kingdom's sake. Jesus, we need you. It's you who've made all the difference. You've secured our future. And when we move forward in faith and take that risk, we know that we're linking arms with you. We're walking out in faith. And God, we know this pleases you. And so there's in your chair, under your seat, the elements for communion. I just encourage you to take that. Think on those things. Say those words to God. Like, Jesus, if you're in me, as I'd like, take this wafer. And if I'm in you, then I, I want to live out of that. <laughs> I, want, I want my life to count. And so we're about to stand and sing and praise. And as we do, take this opportunity. Don't let it pass you by. Take this opportunity to say, yes, I'm going to do it. And Lord, you do whatever you see best with my life. Father, do that in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.